This is an ABC podcast. Coming from Gadigal Country, Late Night Live Summer, and I want to ask you a, a personal question. Is there anything on your summer reading list that takes you out of your comfort zone? As my first guest hopes you will be reading dangerously. Then we head to Christmas Island to meet the locals and find out how they dealt with the sad toll of refugee deaths on their shores. You get a measure of the power literature from the way uh, totalitarian regimes uh, try to ban them or burn them. But what happens when great writers are silenced not by force but by indifference, by neglect? Azar Nafisi has had a front row seat in both realities, in the country of her birth, Iran, and now in her adopted home, the US. And she urges those of us in seemingly robust democracies, not to seek out books that make us comfortable, but instead to read dangerously. She writes, and I quote, reading does not necessarily lead to direct political action, but it fosters a mindset that questions and doubts, that is not content with the establishment or the established. Now, you might well be familiar with her previous books, particularly the New York Times bestseller Reading Lolita in Tehran. Her latest is Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. And as I, in welcoming you to the Little Wireless program, let me say with considerable pride that quite a few of the writers on your dangerous list have been guests on the program in the past. Ray oh, Brad- how wonderful. Well, Ray Bradbury, <laughs> decades ago, Salman Rushdie. Ah. Margaret Atwood. So you are among friends. But let's begin by hearing about your life, please. Would you introduce us to your marvellous father and the democratic approach he took to reading to you as a child? Yeah, my father, one of the unique aspects of my father was uh, how he treated me and my brother always ever since I became conscious of myself and of the world. He treated us equally. We never had from him edicts and, uh, uh, you know, advice. We we always had with him conversations. And uh, those conversations began with him uh, when I was about three, three and a half years old, uh, with him telling me stories. And he was very democratic in his telling of the stories. Uh, He was very diverse uh, in the stories he told us. So one night uh, I would travel with him to the land of uh, our uh, great epic poet Ferdowsi, who lived a thousand years ago. The next night we would go to France with the little prince, go to England with uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland, Denmark with Little Match Girl, (laughs) US with Charlotte's Web. And you know, at that age, I realized through these stories that I can stay in my little room 
in Tehran and the world will come to me. Now, the, the book is essentially a series of letters to this marvellous father and it's a continuation of the ritual you kept up throughout his life and often through troubled times. Yes, uh, I remember when I uh, was only 13, they sent me to uh, Britain uh, to continue my studies and, as my parents put it, uh, to become independent, uh, both in my thinking and uh, in terms of my life. Uh, and I was so uh, bereft. I mean, I couldn't believe that I, you can lose everyone and everything you love at the drop of an eyelid, the way I lost it when I was um, sent to England. And uh, the way that I coped with that uh, was something that I did throughout my life. Uh, I created a portable world for myself, a world that cannot be taken away from me by anything in reality. And in that portable world, I took three books. Uh, I took the best that Iran had to offer, his poets. Uh, uh, two of them were Hafez and Rumi, the great classical Persian poets. And one was um, a feminist Persian poet whom I loved throughout my life. And uh, with these poems at nights, I would be reading um, them and going back to my Iran uh, and making myself at home in their poetry. And the way I made my home in England and later in United States was by reading them. It was Austin and Auden and uh, Melville and Twain and um, uh, later on James Baldwin and uh, Toni Morrison. These were the people who were my kith and kin. And uh, before I went to America or to England, I had been to the imaginary England and America. There was also the time, of course, when your father was a political prisoner for four years. Yes, yes. My father was great at his job. He was mayor of Tehran and one of the most popular ones and the youngest mayor. Uh, but he, I really don't think he was made for politics. He, he wasn't a good politician, whatever that is. Um, he uh, spoke his mind and uh, did what he felt was right, regardless of what uh, others uh, told him. And he made two very powerful enemies, the prime minister and the minister of the uh, interior. Uh, and uh, they created some trumped up charges against him and put him in temporary jail. He was told several times that uh, he can uh, come out of jail if he said that he was sorry. And he said that uh, he wanted to have his day in court. And so they kept him in what they called the temporary jail for four years. And then they didn't know what to do with him. So in the end, he did have his day in court. He did defend himself. Uh, he began his defense with a poem from uh, our epic poet Ferdowsi. And his uh, defense is filled with poetry, both from Iran and around the world. And he was exonerated 
of all charges. That's the most wonderful story. Now, you <laughs> returned to Iran in 79 after the revolution. Yeah. What was it like trying to teach literature in that context? Oh, my God. It was, you know, first of all, uh, I had to constantly go through this struggle with uh, the officials uh, at, at the university because um, of the books I taught. But I, at the same time, learned that the things that I couldn't say uh, for example, I couldn't talk about totalitarianism and democracy uh, or lack of freedom of choice in Iran, but I could talk to them through these stories. And I could connect my students to the world through their art and literature. So everything that I taught, I was trying to show them the democratic structure of the novel. For novel is uh, one of the greatest vehicles for democracy. It is structure is democratic. In a great novel, you have different characters who are um, have come come to you from different places and different beliefs and uh, each of these characters has his or her own voice even the villain gets the voice and uh, a bad writer is like a dictator he wants to impose his voice his message upon everyone around him. And so I use the works of fiction in order to teach my students what democracy meant. I'd like you to tell us about your, um, your book club in your home where you taught forbidden texts, including Lolita, which you saw as some sort of metaphor. Yes, uh, Lolita I saw as a metaphor for uh, against all tyrannical regimes. Uh, Lolita is not a political novel, but what Nabokov does in his best work is he targets a totalitarian and absolutist mindset. And the narrator in Lolita, Humbert Humbert, who imposes his own dreams, his own figment of his own uh, desires on a 12-year-old orphan girl, raping her every night for two years. But the whole point about uh, the crime that Humbert, Humbert commits is the fact that he takes away from Lolita her identity, her individuality, her childhood and imposes upon her his own dreams, his own desires. He turns Lolita into a figment of his imagination. And my students could very well understand this because the Islamic regime did exactly the same thing with women in Iran, mm. trying to impose its own figment of imagination upon um, women of Iran. And to this day, women are fighting and refusing to comply with the images that the regime has tried to create for them. You also are able to get a smuggled copy of, uh, of Rushdie's uh, Satanic Verses. 
But you don't see that book as being dangerous because of its criticism of Islam, but simply because it's thought-provoking. It is, that is the whole point. And that is what um, really makes me afraid uh, right now in uh, my other home, the United States. The fact that we evade thinking, we evade feeling. Uh, at the end of reading Lolita, I mentioned Saul Bellow talking about the fact that um, in totalitarian societies, um, violence is so obvious. But in a democracy, we don't put uh, our writers in jail or, or torture them or kill them. But he said what threatens a democracy is its sleeping consciousness and its atrophy of feeling. One of, one of the books you suggest we read is uh, Bradbury's uh, brilliant 1953 novel, Fahrenheit 451, and uh, over 30 years ago I had the, the privilege on this program of discussing that book with him. It wow. is, of course, the, the temperature at which paper burns. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, he, he is amazing. Uh, he predicted where a democracy could go. Uh, if it becomes indifferent towards literature and thought. In many uh, ways, it's as prescient as all, isn't it? Oh, yes, he is prescient, definitely. And uh, he not only is prescient when it comes to uh, the totalitarian tendencies within a democracy, but also um, about the gadgets we carry. The fact that we are more and more isolating ourselves, dehumanizing ourselves through these gadgets, through paying more attention to the reality they offer rather than reality itself. It's interesting, isn't it, that in that book, uh, anyone with a book has their house burnt down effectively. So people become books. They memorise, they choose a text and they memorise it. And in a way, it's getting to that point again. Yes, it is getting to that point again. And, uh, you know, Ray Bradbury uh, said that uh, you don't have to burn books to destroy a culture. All you have to do is to get people not to read. Because, you see, we want to be complacent. We don't want to be bothered, disturbed. As James Baldwin used to say, artists are here to disturb the peace. That's what I tell the young people, um, that you are here to be disturbed. Uh, but, but they are being taught that, no, you are here to be comfortable. You are here not to see the complexities, the ambiguities of life, the paradoxes, the contradictions that is life. And so uh, I think that we are in a very dangerous transitional point. The, the great strength of Baldwin, and you point this out, is instead of trying to provide answers, he constantly asked questions. Yes, and I feel that a great reader is the one who poses himself as a question mark. I mean, it is so much easier to criticize the world or criticize others, but reading should become a mirror in which we look at ourselves and some of the things we see we don't like. 
Now, another guest on the program was the marvellous Margaret Atwood, and uh, she, like you, now sees The Handmaid's Tale coming true with with the attack on abortion rights in the U.S., of course, I, as I mentioned in this book, I think that The Handmaid's Tale Atwood had an eye towards the Islamic Republic of Iran as well. Um, she creates that kind of atmosphere so masterfully. And um, uh, she saw, she most probably saw the trends in the United States, uh, the extreme polarization where one segment of society sees the other segment as the enemy of the people. This is such a Stalinist language to be using in a democracy. There's one author and a book that I do not know, and that's Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. Why is that dangerous? Oh, Zora Neale Hurston lived in the first half of 20th century in America. Uh, She was doubly oppressed as a woman and as an African-American woman. And uh, at that time, it was uh, in the 30s when she was writing, uh, political writing was very much uh, the trend. She refused to be political. And yet she created the most subversive character as her protagonist. She produced a woman who was both um, a black and, uh, and, a, and a woman. And she refused to become both what uh, the white society expected of her as well as her own people. Zora Neale Hurston in Janie Crawford creates an, a very independent woman uh, whom uh, in 30s America she, mar- she lives with, she falls in love with and marries a man who is um, over a decade or two uh, younger than she is. So she becomes a very subversive figure. Well, as you say, she's not political. She transcends politics. Yes. Yes. And that is the whole point of fiction, that it does not pander to politics or does not become a handmaid to politics. Fiction, you know, at least three novelists in my book, um, uh, Margaret Atwood, uh, James Baldwin, and uh, David Grossman, consider themselves as writers to be witnesses. They are witnesses to truth. What a writer is after is not some formula that everybody knows about, not some platitude, not some message, political message. They are after the truth. And truth is always dangerous to a totalitarian mindset because whether you live in a democracy or whether you live in a totalitarian society, totalitarian mindsets feed on lies. That is how they keep control. You you and I are talking at a time when book banning, approaching book burning, is on an unprecedented scale in the United States. Yes, you know, one of the signs of totalitarianism is that they first target women, 
minorities and culture. And books have become the canaries in the mind. You want to know how free the country is, you go to uh, the way we're treating our, uh, imagination and ideas. And banning books uh, is the first sign. And the about 1,500 books that we know of have been banned quite recently. I mean, it's mind-boggling. Did you ever imagine that you would be told what to read and what not to read, um, what to write and what not to write? Uh, that is the stage we, we are entering. And uh, we, I believe we need to create subversive book groups throughout the country. Well, that, now this is important because you end the book by talking about the collective power of readers, what you see as the responsibility of readers, and what message would you like us to take away? Yes, the responsibility of readers at this point is to try to create means of communication within the communities talking about censorship and banning books and uh, the importance of imagination and ideas. Uh, readers uh, have, you know, readers and writers uh, are uh, like intimate strangers. They are motivated by the same passions and by the same desires. And it's not enough uh, to just read books at this point. I think we do need to create collective book groups. Azar, it's been a, a, a privilege to talk to you and thank you very much for your it's time. It's been a pleasure and privilege to talk to you as well. Thank you. My guest has been Azar Nafisi the author of Reading Lolita in Tehran, and we've been talking about her latest book, Read Dangerously, the Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times, published by, by HarperCollins. This is LNL Summer on RN, and coming up, the, the multicultural history of Christmas Island and how the community helped asylum seekers. Beloved listeners, take your uh, minds back to uh, to 2010 when a boat crowded with asylum seekers crashes onto rocks on Christmas Island. 35 people died and a lot of local people witnessed the tragedy and its consequences. And so it is around the world. And as the numbers of people seeking humanitarian and economic refuge increase, Everywhere they land and everywhere they are detained, there are local people who will inevitably be affected by what they see and possibly by ongoing involvement with the asylum seekers. But we don't hear much about these people. In fact, we hear nothing about these people. They're the host communities, effectively, even though they usually didn't choose to be. Dr. Michelle DeMarcy was also living on Christmas Island on that fateful, fatal day. She had been researching a PhD on Christmas Islanders' responses to earlier asylum seekers. Now, Michelle has published these findings in a book called Hope, Solidarity and Death at the Australian Border, 
Asylum Seekers and Christmas Island. Michelle's a human rights advocate and is now based in Dubai but has been here in Australia to launch her book and I'm delighted to have her sitting opposite me, which is a a rare experience in these pandemical days. Michelle, welcome. It's one of those things we tend not to think about until someone, in this case you, raises it, the perspective of the locals. Thanks, Philip, and thanks for having me today. Yes, well, the perspective of the locals is a really important one, given that host communities are always quite heavily affected by what happens when boats arrive in the space that they live in. And you began today speaking about the 2010 boat crash, the tragedy there. And Christmas Islanders were really affected by what happened there. You know, where they were able to rush out onto the rocks, rescue people as much as best as they could, as did the Navy that day. Um, And it was such a horrendous, horrendous event, but it does give us clues into what happens when host communities are confronted with the issues of seeking asylum. Now, we need to remember that Christmas Island is closer to Indonesia than mainland Australia. And that's a key reason why it was a destination. That's exactly right. It's about 350 kilometres south of Java, um, so very, very close to Indonesia. And even the demographic makeup of Christmas Island is quite representative of places such as Singapore. You know, it was an original Straits colony, so the, the demographic is mainly Chinese and Malay people that all migrated there in the earlier years to work in the phosphate mine. And interestingly, Christmas Island celebrates the same holidays as somewhere such as Singapore or Malaysia, Chinese New Year, Hari Raya and these types of events. It's interesting, isn't it, that islanders are no strangers to boat journeys themselves with any number of them migrating from Asia across the Indian Ocean to Christmas Island. Yes. So if we go back in, in, in time with boat arrivals into Australia, Indonesia was often the last port of call before people got on those boats that had been fleeing, you know, what was happening in Afghanistan, in Iraq, Iran. And um, Christmas Island became a destination to get to Australia because it was part of Australia, even though its proximity was so close to Indonesia. You write very evocatively, and I quote, that the island's humid air is often intensified with the smell of incense from one of the many Buddhist temples while the mosque's call to prayer echoes within close vicinity to the small Catholic church. Yes, uh, multiculturalism is a huge factor of Christmas Island and you cannot help but notice these different overlapping aspects everywhere you walk around the island. You know, some of the street names are in in Malay or they're in Chinese or some are in English. And it really is just such a beautiful example of a place that, you know, really celebrates multiculturalism and diversity. Well, they also celebrate a wide variety of religious holidays. Correct. So, you know, Ramadan is celebrated there. Um, when the Malay community finishes fasting, they celebrate Hari Raya, Chinese New Year. How did the island get its name of Christmas? Christmas Island, it was um, discovered on Christmas Day. Oh. <laughs> it was originally uninhabited and then the day it was sighted, was on, it fell on Christmas Day. Yeah. Now, this very interesting mix means that a proportion, at least, of Christmas Islanders have two things in common 
with asylum seekers, Islam often, Mm -hmm. and I guess a sense of being outsiders, even seen as lesser. Well, Philip, that's a really important point because what happened on Christmas Island for many years was essentially apartheid. So for the Asian community, they were racially discriminated against. Um, They were not afforded the same rights as mainland Australians. And this was all about population control that was taking place. Unfortunately, at that time, the Australian government didn't want to take responsibility for the Asian population that was there um, working in the phosphate mine. And the community became very, very active through the Union of Christmas Island Workers, you know, in terms of trying to really advocate for their rights. Well, that put an end to the technical segregation, didn't it? It did, it did. But even for someone who was Asian, you know, they were not allowed to go on the same bus as a white person. Um, You're kidding. Yeah, and this was taking place up until the 1980s when people were actually given the same rights as mainland Australians. So there's an underlying empathy, has to be there, but asylum seekers had economic impacts too because uh, tourism operators were concerned about the reputation of the place. Yes, it's a quite a complicated issue in that respect because what happened was while people wanted, especially you know, a lot of business owners wanted to see Tourists come to the island. It is a really beautiful island. It has some of the best diving spots in the world. Um, And so, and the jungle there is fascinating. Obviously, they want to promote tourism, but of course, it's also got a reputation and it's this place that incarcerates asylum seekers in a a very, very large maximum style security detention centre. And that huge new detention centre would replace phosphate mining as the main source of employment. It did for some years there, correct. When we saw a surge in boat arrivals back in 2010, 11, 12, it was one of the largest employers there. The phosphate mine was no longer the largest employer. It must have divided attitudes among the islanders. Correct. It, it, It did because we saw the island move away from a very sort of casual approach to detention operations to a full-scaled institutionalised detention operation where it became what we could call a border economy. What was what was the population before Christmas Island became a such a significant detention centre? Yeah, so it's always hovered around 1,300 people. Well, heavens above, detention uh, centre figures... Two and a half thousand mm, people. Yeah, correct. So at one point it was, yeah, over two and a half thousand asylum seekers on the island, several hundred immigration and Serco staff who were responsible for the security of the detention centre. And of course, the overcrowding resulted in the erection of all those tents. Yeah, I remember witnessing that. So at one point we had asylum seekers uh, sleeping in tents on you know, army camper beds as well, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, there were delays in processing which exacerbated emotions and uh, I recall the time when detainees were protesting and rioting and in the odd case, escaping. Mm. So I was on Christmas Island during those 2011 riots and people were protesting and escaping. And at that time, 
there had been significant delays in people's asylum seeker processing claims. Some people had been there for at least over a year. Some people had been returned to Christmas Island. People were really tired and needed outcomes to their case. They'd come to Australia as refugees. Some had already been found to be refugees even, but there were still delays in processing. Now, you went there initially thinking you'd be writing about something historical about the Howard years of loving memory because arrivals had stopped, but then boats started arriving again. Not a lot. And for a moment, wasn't there a a more humane approach from the Rudd government? Correct. So when I did go there in 2008 to commence the fieldwork and research and look at this more of a historical thesis, there were no boats. But within my arrival three weeks, boats started coming. And we'd also seen the announcement of the Rudd government's policy with the new detention values, which were much more humane than what they had been under the previous Liberal government. Now, detainees were to be processed within 120 days. Correct. And there was a more of a move towards community detention. So we did see some asylum seekers living on the Christmas Island uh, in the community there as well. But when you visited a group of Hazara refugees who'd uh, resettled in Adelaide, they were eager for news. They did. They wanted to know what had happened. And they they have such fond memories of Christmas Island and the people um, and the place. They also thought it was an extremely beautiful island, a very peaceful island, which coming from somewhere like Afghanistan that has had decades of, of turmoil, it did represent to them a very peaceful place. But, of course, uh, at the end of the day, they wanted to move on to the mainland. Now, let's go back on this issue of demographics. Who were the asylum seekers at that point? Where were they coming from and uh, how quickly did the numbers grow? At that time, back in 2008 to 2010, the majority of people that were coming were those from Afghanistan. And we also saw people coming from Iran and small numbers from Sri Lanka as well, um, because there had been some unrest in Sri Lanka. But the majority of people that were coming were were Afghans and Iranians. Now, from 2008 to 2011, more than 14,000 asylum seekers arrived by boat in Australian waters, with most transiting through Indonesia and subsequently being detained on Christmas Island. Okay, now the furious asylum seeker debate was of course uh, reignited and in 2008 uh, the Rudd government announced a six-month suspension of all asylum uh, claims by Hazara Afghans. Yes, I was on Christmas Island during that time and and I happened to be in the detention centre when that was announced that day to uh, asylum seekers, uh, particularly the Afghans, that they would no longer be processed for the, six the months. The government's excuse was that uh, conditions had improved in Afghanistan. Which they hadn't. <laughs> and I did go to Afghanistan um, in light of, of that uh, policy announcement. And what I did find was, yes, there had been an improvement for Hazara people generally. They had better access to education, that their rights were being better upheld under that government, but and still the security conditions were not where they needed to be. And I witnessed this, you know, Hazara people came forward and showed me 
Taliban death threat letters that they'd received um, and you know, it was clear that this was still a place that Hazaras were having to escape from due to persecution. Let's now focus on how local Christmas Islanders interacted with all of this. Back in the, the 90s, it had been Vietnamese and Chinese arrivals. Back in the 90s, we saw Chinese people coming by boat and obviously given uh, that the majority of people on Christmas Island identify with being Chinese, Chinese Australians, um, they obviously had a shared common culture. So I mentioned in the book, um, one of the interviewees said, oh, you know, there was a lot of cooking because everyone is Chinese here. So people were taking down Chinese food to the what was called the sports hall where people were actually um, being detained in. So there was a common uh, cultural connection um, that... Uh, obviously allowed for even, you know, closer relations. Now, help and support came from local Chinese-descended people until they weren't allowed to access the detainees anymore. Mm. People were quite upset about that. People wanted to give them food. They wanted to take blankets. They wanted to give toys to the children. And in my own research, I've found that when people are able to see the human face and hear the stories of asylum seekers, they they actually, uh, the human condition is we want to help. Yeah. Now, Alan Nell on RN and my guest is uh, Dr Michelle DeMarcy, who's written a book about Christmas Island and asylum seekers, but it puts the spotlight on the local islanders, which uh, few others have done. Michelle herself lived on Christmas Island for some years doing ethnographic research for her PhD. Now, another thing the islanders have seen, which most Australians don't, is the condition of the boats that the people arrived in. Exactly. So people did see these boats and the question would come up for most people was if someone has taken the risk to get on this little leaky boat, something is seriously wrong in their own country. No one is just going to get on a boat like this just for for the fun of it. They're obviously escaping something very, very serious. And people would run to boats with blankets. People would run towards the boats. There are photographs I've seen as well of earlier years where people were actually helping getting women and children off the boats and bringing them to shore. Then the Tampa saga. It's 2001. The Norwegian ship that had picked up asylum seekers from the ocean was not allowed by the Howard government to enter Christmas Island waters over 300 islanders demonstrating and chanting, let them land, let them land. Yes, and the Tampa affair that took place off the coast of Christmas Island was such a pivotal moment, obviously, in Australia's history. Well, it led, of course, to a landslide victory for Howard and what David Marr appropriately called dark victory. It did, it did. But the Christmas Islanders had a very different view to what many mainland Australians had, which was that the Tampa asylum seekers needed to come ashore and they were protesting down in Flying Fish Cove saying, let them land, and that is what they requested from the Australian government. And the response? 
Well, we all know what happened after that. We entered into a very dark era of uh, offshore immigration detention. It also um, began what has been called a militarisation of Christmas Island and locals didn't like that. They didn't. It was the first time that they were seeing people, military, running around with guns, for example. This was very disturbing to Christmas Islanders. Um, This is a very, very peaceful island. Um, They were not being told um, what was happening. Areas were blockaded off that they couldn't access. Well, you interviewed a guy called Marcus, and I quote, the SAS came like you wouldn't believe. It was like a bloody invasion. And that was told to me on numerous occasions by people that I spoke to. Now, when the Tampa affair ended, although in a way it's never ended, the Norwegian captain, Renan, was a bit of a local hero, wasn't he? He was, he was. He was a celebrated hero on Christmas Island. I understand local businesses collected funds to stage a a fireworks show for the Tampa. That's correct. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, people were very active and I think on somewhere like Christmas Island, you know, it's so remote that people come up with different ways to, whether it's to protest, to celebrate, and in this instance they felt that the Tampa captain needed to really be acknowledged because he, he, he had saved those people on board the Tampa. And a local resident said... It was to tell him sorry about everything that's happened, but goodbye, farewell, and maybe come back as a visitor. I wonder whether the good captain ever did. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think this is just another example of ways in which Christmas Islanders are so supportive of asylum seekers and those that help asylum seekers. Nine years after the Tampa... Giant seas washed the Civ 221 onto the cliffs of Christmas Island and the deaths that resulted, of course, remind us of the scale of the tragedy. Mm. Yes, it was such a tragic day when that boat crash happened and I think it really revealed to the Australian mainland as well how serious the consequences are for people that that are on these boats and the risk that people take when they need to flee. Now, Michelle, you were on the island but didn't see it unfold on that uh, particular occasion. No, I didn't see it firsthand, but I do remember going down to the settlement area of the island and I had family living on the island as well. Um, And in my, my parents' house, because they were there as well on Christmas Island at that time, I could still smell the fuel from the Jenga when it broke up. And I still have this image in my mind as when I looked out at the sea that day and it was still really rough and I could see this child's backpack floating floating. on the the, the sea. You know, I can still remember images of that detritus. Mm. Now, once again, locals tried everything they could to try and save people in very dangerous conditions. Mm. People clambered down onto the rocks, you know, they cut their legs open, they were forming like a human chain trying to pass life jackets. You know, some people really wanted to jump into the ocean and save, but, you know, other people were holding them back from doing that on that that tragic day. One of the, uh, the rescuers said, for a short time a stranger became a loved one. That's a heartbreaking thing. Isn't it, it is a heartbreaking statement and it reinforces that asylum seekers and refugees are 
human like you and I and people could see that. They could see a, a father, a brother, a, a child, you know, in the faces of those people. And the island was traumatised, wasn't it? It went into what you talk about as a kind of generalised grief. There was. It, it was several days on the island. The atmosphere was very, very heavy. People were severely affected by what had happened. There were even public readings of survivor thank you letters and I have to read this one from Ramin who lost his wife, son, brother and sister-in-law. Here on Christmas Island we have met the kindest people on earth. I wish I could talk your language, how it is here, how kind you are. We lost wife, kids, a lot of people. The huge hole in my heart from that loss has been filled with the kindness of the great people here. Mm. Yeah, so when I still hear that, I still become quite emotional listening to that. You know, it's, As I'm sure everyone listening to us yeah. is responding in the same way. Mm. But you were hearing these stories directly from survivors. Correct. I did. And I, I spent a lot of time with survivors inside the immigration detention facility You as got well. a job teaching, didn't you? <laughs> That's right. Yes, I was doing that for a, a brief period, um, teaching asylum seeker kids in the detention centre. Yeah. The establishment of this ginormous new detention centre really shifted a lot of things. It institutionalised the whole asylum-seeking process and it separated asylum-seekers from the local community. And that's the issue I have with immigration detention because when you look at these maximum security detention facilities, it does give the perception that people inside those detention centres are criminals and they must have done something wrong. Of course, it also means the loss of physical proximity weakens the ties, the shared humanity. Absolutely. People can't get inside to see them and it's it's such a, a bureaucratic system in terms of trying to gain access to people in immigration detention still to this day. I was deeply involved in refugee issues at the time and, of course, out of sight meant out of mind. There was willful ignorance of what was going on in this country. Out of sight, out of mind, out of rights. Probably <laughs> out something. of rights, yeah. And, of course, they... People are depersonalised and become, as happens again and again and again in the annals of human history, the other. The other and they become a number and people are referred to as their immigration ID number, not necessarily by name anymore. And then it sat empty. And then the Tamil family, known as the Belowada family, were there. The only people apart from staff in that enormous place. How bizarre. What a ridiculous expense. A ridiculous expense and also a very inhumane thing to do to send a family back to Christmas Island. And then uh, just recently a group of 12 detainees were moved from Melbourne to Christmas Island. They're people whose visas have been revoked, so it rolls on and on and on. What's the view now on Christmas Island? I guess the population wishes the centre had never been built. 
I would say that the view today on Christmas Island is Christmas Islanders are very proud of their island and so they should be, as I said at the start. It's, it, you know, it's such an incredible place in the way in which it's got so many natural things to offer and the diving. So people are proud of that. Um, they don't want to be known as, you know, Australia's Guantanamo Bay. They're very, very proud of their island. Australia's Guantanamo Bay. Okay. Let's now zoom out. There are communities in many other parts of the world having to deal with these uh, situations. And one, of course, is land producer, the Italian island between Tunisia and Malta, where um, so many people have arrived by boat or not arrived, Mm. and where, once again, a big detention centre. On Lampedusa, the islanders or the Lampedusians have been dealing with asylum seekers and migrants for some years now. The numbers that they're receiving by boat are much, much larger than what we've been receiving in Australia. But something that always stands out in my mind is that the Mediterranean Sea is the largest mass grave in the world because so many people have drowned trying to get to Europe. Off the coast of Italy, Greece, Tunisia, yeah. Asylum-seeking numbers in Italy are a case in point. Over 13,000 boat arrivals in 2021 to date and over 500 people drowning at sea. Mm. Yes, on Lampedusa, there are memorials that have been erected to acknowledge those that have tried to arrive on Lampedusa and into Europe. Um, The island, it, it really embodies some of the aspects of Christmas Island that it becomes a place where there are unfortunately grave sites for asylum seekers, memorials for those that were lost at sea. Tell me about the Lampedusa resident who crafted individual crosses for each uh, survivor. Yeah, so there's been an, a number of acts where when I spoke to those people on Lampedusa, they said we need we need to give people dignified deaths here. This is really, really important for them. And you can see that when you go to the Lampedusa uh, cemetery. It's almost as if you're entering into this it's almost like an art exhibition of asylum seeker deaths. And the the local people have taken it to, to paint the tombstones, to, to put the crosses there, acknowledge what has happened to people. And they've said to me, we, we need to give these people dignified deaths. I understand uh, some of the crosses are now housed in the British Museum. Yeah, and that was a um, an exhibition that, that toured into the UK just to raise awareness um, around those that had been lost at sea. Khalid Husseini, the author of The Kite Runner, has written a, a butte forward to your book and uh, royalties from the book will go to? Yeah, so royalties will go to the Khalid Husseini Foundation um, to support the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. The situation is very, very dire right now in Afghanistan. Um, you know, we're looking at up to two million children that could possibly face starvation. By mid this year, over 97% of the Afghan population will fall into extreme poverty. I want to read what he says in your book about this whole situation. It is true that some people are escaping crushing poverty and come looking for work or education and better opportunities and as such may not need international protection. But many are running from horrors, armed conflict, insecurity, unfathomable human rights violations and gender-based violence. Many run because of religious, ethnic and political persecution 
or persecution due to sexual orientation. These groups are legally entitled to international protection because they no longer have the protection of their governments and can't go safely home. They should be treated with compassion and dignity and have their human rights respected. They deserve better than scorn, rejection and open-ended detention. I'm sure we both wholeheartedly agree with that. Absolutely. It's, it is about people's human rights being respected. It's about compassion and it's about being able to see refugees and asylum seekers the same as we all want to be seen. You know, we have a right to safety to be able to live freely. Michelle, you're uh, reasonably familiar with Afghanistan. Did you imagine a decade ago that things would have gone as far backwards as they have? Definitely not. You know, it's so devastating what has happened there. I went to Afghanistan many times and, uh, you know, Afghanistan is such a country that's so rich in in culture and music and food and poetry. And, you know, right now, you know, all of people's perceptions of Afghanistan is it's just this place filled with fighting and horror. And I feel that, you know, we didn't think it would go this backward and it's really unfortunate. I've had the honour of uh, talking to Dr Michelle DeMarsing, human rights advocate and activist, now the author of Hope, Solidarity and Death, The Australian Border, Asylum Seekers and Christmas Island. It's from Cambridge Scholars Publishing and, uh, as you've heard, royalties go to the Khaled Husseini Foundation. And uh, you are now the recipient of the highest award that this little program can bestow, which is a koala stamp, in your case with gum leaf clusters. Thanks for coming. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. On our next, we head from Christmas Island to the Greek islands and then to Budapest to explore their histories and how they echo in the present. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.